0: Hey, brother. Just giving you something I can upload right after you're done. Thank so you, sir. Well, morning. Good morning. morning, good morning. Hey Carol. <laughs> Nine-ish, right? <laughs> Ten-ish, two, right? <laughs> We like our ishes here. <laughs> Sounds a little to me. A little Baptistic, yeah. If <laughs> I are going to cheer me up during service today, it's going to be It is nice because you do have those where you're low and low. No, I'm kidding. I'm happy on this day. I'm so glad. <laughs> I didn't realize there was anything to cheer about with that though, Art. <laughs> are they like winning games? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so to kick off, yeah. Yeah. You're down seven nothing. Could already did that. Well, that was like the first couple of weeks for the Cowboys fans. You know, they were like after uh, Dak Prescott, you know, got injured. Everybody was like, oh, they're never going to make it. And they're three and one. <laughs> and now they're saying, uh, what is his name? The coach, Mike Greenworth or something like that. They're saying he, he needs to be called coach of the year. Michael, like no, four got, games You got this. You got this? Okay. <laughs> that's what we're Go. about. Go, Go. Go, back. Go back. Yes. Tell us about unexplained stuff, okay? Are you new to Wow. Caleb, you're very dapper this morning. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I got a plug. Yeah, so yeah, other than that. That's <laughs> <a> fun <laughs> fun. <laughs> <laughs> I got a <laughs> 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 we are not early. <laughs> <worthy. laughs> <laughs> 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 I know. I did <laughs> what? <was> I <laughs> you did what? I got joke and <laughs> <aunt> socks. <laughs> I know. Serves you right for giving me a little bit of a kiss. I could use a cup. That'd be great. Yeah, I got... Uh, Dang, how am I going to break that up? I don't know and i got i and i got the I got problem i guess you got Downstairs. No. He said I he, he said they had fun. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> he was very tired. But I didn't know he had woken up at three thirty in the morning. They <laughs> have Yeah. No, I was going back and he said He's up. So I got home right? because I had to decide, I like, yeah, exactly. got well, she home she to a yes. so and I was like, no, know, like we she I she like, have have was like, Jared Jared said that. Yeah. And, that, uh, and I was like, the yeah. like, yes, you know, yes. so uh, I was like, here, He said you can come? She's like, she invited you like Matt was like, I'm sorry. Dead markers. You got another one? Someplace. So, I think there might be one over there. I haven't heard from the boys either. That I, haven't I, mean, I have no So, I'm hoping maybe <laughs> I'll, I'll get like a, a little rundown because run I told them to film out, one of the tanks. Oh, so out. yeah. We'll we'll see if I get that. So, I remember some of it. I about the people. They meant They Good. Good. I don't know much about it yet. So this is what I'm studying First Muslim, Christian, and the Sharia law which is, well, that's all one thing. Then, this is other classes. Yeah, but it's actually the cases of all Muslims, even though they don't have, like the ones that we say in America, the rejected ejected is to say that they're glad to Okay, guys, good morning. Good morning. How are you all? Good, next week we're going through the book of Psalms, so get ready, <laughs> lots of poetry. there's lots of poetry and lots of reading therefore, we're going to split this up into Saturday, six days, 150 chapters to Psalms, some short ones, some long ones. One fifty divided by six is at least twenty psalms a day, maybe twenty-five. What was 25. Your objective in skipping games and all of the rest? Of the we had it later on. I know we do, but there must be an objective. Yes, because of the genre. So have some historical later on. It's poetry and wisdom literature all together. So uh, we've got psalm. We're going to do one through twenty-five. Okay, we're going to do them in sections of 25, 26 through, we'll say 51, 52 through oh, 77. 119 should be its own day. So 119 should be its own day. You're probably <laughs> right. Is uh, so read 119 <laughs> and top all this? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> There's some very short ones to compensate. Yeah. But, uh, it's going to be a heavy lift. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Sunday morning. One twenty through one fifty. Oh, good. <goodness. laughs> you could try. <laughs> Thirty on Sunday morning show up for sure. <laughs> yeah, no. I, I'll say this. We'll go one nineteen. is It's, it's going to be a long one, but it takes about two hours to read on its own. Um, let's say to one thirty-five. Wait, one nineteen. One twenty. One twenty. 136 to 150. Okay. Psalm 148 through 150 are some of my favorites. Morning. morning. John Brown. You hey, um, can you do me a favor? Let me show you. <laughs> I'm glad I wrote down the names because I definitely thought it was better. Hell of Fast, Build the Heaven, so those, those those friends. friends, yeah. We great. I did, But you are a sinner, so... yeah, i was going I say. i i was Yeah, the first time you read it, you're like, am I still in the same <laughs> no. But yeah, no, we <laughs> dedicated a whole week to one thing. Okay. Wow. Good morning, Arthur. Just a reminder, as we're going through this, right, we're going from a 30,000-foot view, okay? So it's important that as we read large chunks of Scripture, we're doing so for the sake of understanding the the truth of God's Word. Um, There is a discipline to reading large portions of Scripture, and for many of you who have been working through this, it's worth it. It is good work. Um, It is going to require some time and some sacrifice this week, but... I believe in you so let's get started with with job okay we're going to begin over the next three or four weeks we're going to be going through a section of the old testament called wisdom literature can somebody define for me what wisdom literature is or what i may mean by that any ideas wisdom literature wisdom is uh, the art of living life well Okay. So, the books present like a, a balanced picture of how trying to live wisely, what outcomes that leads to. I like that. Um, hold on to that. Let's define what knowledge is versus what wisdom is. What is knowledge? How does it differ from wisdom? like factual information. Good. So somebody who has a lot of knowledge may know a lot of things, may be able to pull up a lot of facts of things. But how is somebody different who is wise? They know how to apply. it. Exactly. So if we were to break it down into two simple words, they're very closely connected. Knowledge is the facts of things. Wisdom is the application of those facts. Okay? So let's, let's use a proverb as an example here. Proverbs 9:10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Okay? So, if we were to break down that proverb, Proverbs 9:10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? If we can fear God, we can have a knowledge of who he is. That's a good thing. But, it continues on, right? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. There's all sorts of implications about not just knowing it, but living by the fear that's involved and the application of that knowledge and understanding. Knowledge is different from wisdom. As we come to this section of the Bible, particularly Job, Psalms, uh, the Proverbs, the book of Ecclesiastes, we're going to see what is technically called wisdom literature. Sometimes uh, there are Bible scholars who chunk this in with uh, the portion of writings that we call the historical writings. Okay. That is appropriate. These are historical, but there's a difference in style of writing between what we find particularly in Job and Psalms and Proverbs compared to what we would find in some of the historical prophets or 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. So 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles are going to be primarily what we call historical narrative. Now, Job is historical narrative, but what you'll find more often than not is that some of the literary features throughout the book of Job include what we call couplets, which are lines of poetry which influence both the Psalms and the different Proverbs. So there are so many different types of Hebrew uh, works in which we see poetry come into a large number of functions, a uh, large number of types and ways that poetry is written. Uh, and I'll be happy to talk on some of those as we go. But and that, those couplets go all the way back to Egyptian dynasties and Egyptian poetry before. Yeah. This so the cultic writings are, are influential, definitely, to the stylistic writing that we see within uh, this section of Scripture. So we, we're diving in. It's been a, a couple of weeks since I've gotten to be with you. I'm excited to be here this morning. Uh, if you don't have a handout, there are a few more that are over there. We're happy to give those to you. We also have them available digitally. Um, and we're going to be spending most of our time today in the book of Job. Caleb finished up last week by looking at how the Old Testament was taking a turn in redemptive history. Uh, you can see a thematic grouping of the books of the Old Testament moving from God's creation of the people in the Pentateuch and then to the establishment of God's people in the land and the crowning of God's king that we saw last week in Ruth and 1st and 2nd Samuel. And the next book of the Bible, 1st Kings, begins the process of reversing all of that with the disobedience of God's kings. So we are going to get to 1st Kings, but it is later in our, our time of Old Testament survey. But there is a pattern that we're seeing developed here. Now in the middle of all of this kingship, uh, we have what is called the wisdom and praise of God's king, and the wisdom and praise of God himself. The, the term that is often called wisdom literature is interestingly found right in the middle of your Bible. Right. What is the exact middle place of the Bible? Anybody know? So one of the Psalms, maybe 119. Yeah. Which one? 119. Nope. 117? Nope. It's 118. Yeah. You would think that it's Psalm 119, right? Because it's so large. It's 176 verses, but it's actually Psalm 118 is the exact middle point of the Bible. And it's, it's somewhat yeah, interesting that in our canon, right, when we think of how the books of the Bible are ordered, that God in his providence has used the people who have formed the canon historically to point to maybe an emphasis of what it means to live like God. We have the bookends of his creation and his restoration and wisdom right in the middle of those things. So the way that the Bible is ordered is important to us. Okay. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Songs of Songs, we're also going to include that here because it is largely pro- poetic, are really closely associated to the person that we know, Solomon. Right? He was the son of David. And these books were known for, for wisdom, for ruling well, uh, as God's people and God's king, as the person Solomon ruled as his king. And they were intended for us as people to know what it means to live for God and live in holiness. And so as we break away from the history of the kings from First and Second Samuel on the precipice of First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, we're going to look at God's wisdom and his ways that he was teaching the kings. So ironically, as we get to our first book in wisdom literature, we arrive to Job. And if you've read Job before, you'd probably rise to this book, to this point, and say, Wisdom, (laughs) this guy had everything taken from him. How would he look wise? Well, why are we studying Job now? It's because wisdom literature often squeezes in with the rest of what the Bible is doing. It's, it's throughout the Bible. It's this little thread that we see developed throughout the entirety of the canon. But it's timeless. It's influential. It's important. It helps us to see the character of God and what he requires of his people. So what is Job about? Most fundamentally, Job is about asking some of life's most difficult questions. Most fundamentally, Job is about asking some of life's different questions, or most difficult questions. Questions like, why do the righteous suffer in the same way as the unrighteous? Why is it that the wicked seem to go unpunished and many upright people suffer? How do we explain that to people? How many of you have encountered someone who said to you, why does God do this? Uh, (laughs) I love and hate that question. (laughs) Uh, Maybe most importantly, what we learn from the book of Job and wisdom literature is how righteous people should conduct themselves when they suffer. Not just how we should conduct ourselves, but how we should conduct ourselves, particularly when we suffer. You can tell that two things are assumed when we come to wisdom literature. The first thing we must assume is that God is sovereign, that he ordains everything that comes to pass. And second, in light of that sovereignty and that he ordains everything, we must then assume that God is good, that he is loving and he knows what is right and he hates what is evil. Those things are perfectly consistent, God's sovereignty and God's knowing what is right and what is wrong and evil. The book of Job, much like the book of Ruth that we saw last week in the book of Habakkuk that we'll see in the second half of our course, addresses the gap between what our circumstances seem to say about God and the reality in his word of his goodness and his sovereignty. Our circumstances often make us think that God isn't who he says he is. But these wisdom books remind us, no, he is indeed who he says he is. When we look at life around us, sometimes it feels like God is either not in control or that he doesn't actually care about what is good. And many people may even claim that, that don't know God. But Job is about understanding how we can trust a good and sovereign God in light of all of the unexplained suffering of the world. Notice, too, as we come to wisdom literature, particularly the book of Job, I didn't say that Job explains why these things happen. Sometimes we don't get the answers to why these things happen. This book is useful in part because it explains why bad things happen to Job, but Job never finds that out himself. Instead, the book is about how we can trust a good and sovereign God despite the nature of our circumstances. Job is a book about trusting God. Trust and obey. There is no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. You guys know the hymn. Well, now you got a new one. Dan, put that on hymn or hymn Thursday. <laughs> well, we assume uh, egocentrically that we are the center of the universe. You know, that's how media yeah. portray. You know, so like God's purpose has literally nothing to do with what we think our purpose is. Yeah, we just think that we, we should call it all, we should know it all. This should be all about me, 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 and me, right? But Job is about trust. It's about seeing God in light of who he is, despite who we are. Not perfect explanations. And when we look at the evidence of the book of Job, we can take an intellectual, honest leap Of faith and say that we have to trust God in difficult circumstances, but sometimes the intellect to our heart is a a two-way road. Maybe we come to a fork in the road where we feel like we have to rely on our intellect or rely on our emotion, but this is an exercise in which we must rely upon both, seeing intellectually who God is and then allowing our minds to be transformed so that we're not driven by our emotions. There are going to be plenty of things that we find out in our lives uh, that don't explain any product. It's all good. It's all good? Okay. Sorry. It, if I get a call, it's because our new boiler had a little leak. So we we're making sure that's tightened up. it's good. It's not leaking though. Oh, good. Praise the Lord. <laughs> yeah. New new stuff. You got to make sure it's all tight. And sometimes it happens a few days later, especially when the heat kicks on and it's thirty degrees. Um. Yeah, so if we were to summarize the book of Job in one particular statement, I would put it like this. God is completely sovereign over the affairs of his universe for his own glory. God is completely sovereign over all the affairs of his universe for his own glory. But there is a but indeed to this. But often his motives, reasons, and goals behind what he does are not revealed to us. Yet we find in his character and in our redeemer reason to trust in his care. This isn't some kind of New Testament systematic read into ancient literature. Okay, this isn't us taking the New Testament and imposing it upon the old. Instead, this is the message of Job that we actually get right out of the text. Job takes on mammoth issues. And it doesn't give us some simplistic cliche answer like trust in Jesus. It's just going to be okay. There is no one to one correspondence between evil and suffering. There is not a mathematical equation that can determine how much someone deserves to suffer or doesn't deserve to suffer. Things are complicated, they're sticky. And Job's dealing with this is genuine and realistic. He's very even keeled and level headed throughout most of what we see in his writing until we get to chapters 38, 36 through 40 when he starts to talk back to the Lord and we can see how that goes. <laughs> there is real suffering in the book of Job and wrongheaded attempts to answer the question of why God allows that suffering to happen. But finally, the voice of God is the one that makes things all clear in the process. So we're going to break the book down into three big pictures. First, we'll observe that we often suffer. Okay, so first section is we often suffer. The next idea is that we sometimes understand. We sometimes understand. And then the last idea is that we can always trust God. We can always trust God. So we'll start with why we often suffer or how we often suffer. When we first meet Job, he's described as a righteous man. In chapter 1, verse 1, it says, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Not only was Job righteous, but he's also described as wealthy in verses 2 and 3. And as wise, as we see again down in verse 5. And in all, we, as we see in verse 3, Job was the greatest of the people in the East. What is most well known about Job, though, isn't all of this. It's what he loses. Eight verses chronicle his descent into utter ruin. First, he loses his wealth. Verse 13, all the way through to verse 19, says this. Now, there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While yet another was speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while yet that one was speaking, another came and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house. And it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Man, I don't know about you. I've had a few bad days. Uh, That is a really bad day, right? News upon news upon news. It was not just like a... This happened here, and six months later, this happened there. It was uh, all of this at once came upon him. On top of all of this, Job loses his health in chapter 2, verse 7. And all of this is taken from Job in just a moment. Turning from Job to ourselves, it's worth noting that while Job suffered more suddenly than we will, he didn't suffer more comprehensively than we will suffer. He, he may have sud- or suddenly suffered what he did, but it doesn't mean that he comprehensively suffered more than we could. Walter Scott said this once, he said, Come he slow or come he fast, it is but death that comes at last. Good line from Walter Scott. Suffering is universal, friends. Suffering is guaranteed in our lives. It's not a what if, it's a when. Suffering does indeed happen to us. And and sometimes as Christians, we avoid admitting the doubt, the fear, the failing, the anger, the conflict that suffering can bring. We like our church services to be like motivational pep rallies. It's like, hey, let's go. Let's do this. God is good. (laughs) Sometimes we, we fail to desire to have a realistic understanding about what it means to be a follower of the crucified one. What did Jesus say to the disciples in John 16? The world has hated me. It's going to hate you. Think about the book of Acts as the church is rising up, like Acts 4, as they're being beaten and mocked. As Peter, John, and James gather again with the disciples, they come and they share this report of what's happening and the congregation responds with what? With praise. With praise to the Lord that they were worthy to suffer for the name. Suffering is guaranteed in our lives. We should recognize that. And we may be able to psych ourselves up for a while and be good with that, but there will be times where the idea of suffering is going to plague us. It's going to maybe depress us into such a state that we're, we're weary of depressing. But we need to be reminded that it's for God's glory and for our good. Job is a good example of someone who suffers and deals honestly with his suffering. And maybe we need to learn from his example of how to deal honestly with our suffering. So the first thing we learn is that we often do suffer. Secondly, we must learn that we sometimes understand. We sometimes understand. Truly, that's what the rest of the book of Job is about. Is that we only get to understand sometimes. <laughs> Let me give you a brief overview of the rest of the book. You'll actually see this outlined on the back page of your handout there. Um, I think it may be the back page. It may be flipping through. It's 37, 38. 37, 38. Glorious. At the end of chapter 2, three of Job's friends come to comfort him. And they sit with him in silence for a whole week. Very wise of them. They're just there. Right? Don't worry, though. They show their true colors. (laughs) In chapter 3, Job actually is the one who breaks the silence. And he pours out his complaint to God (laughs) and his complaint to his friends. Then in chapters 4 through 41, all but the last chapter, we see a series of different dialogues, uh, of discourse, of speech. Chapters 4 through 31 contains three cycles of dialogues between Job and his friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. In cycles one and two, Eliphaz speaks and Job responds. Then Bildad speaks and Job responds. Then Zophar speaks and Job responds. Really, each of these speakers makes the same point. Job's friends say that suffering has happened because Job has sinned. They're all convinced that he has sinned and that is why he has suffered. And Job's response is that's not so, I'm innocent. (laughs) And at the end of the third cycle, Job finally makes his final protest where he almost demands for God to show up and to explain his suffering. Instead of God, we hear from a man named Elihu, who appears in chapter 32 and speaks all the way to chapter 37. Elihu says that he has been listening for some time, but hasn't said anything because he's younger and doesn't want to disrespect his elders. These guys are smart. (laughs) But Elihu's not happy with anyone. (laughs) He believes there has been far too much navel gazing and pointing at Job and not enough looking to God in all of this. So he gives four monologues on the greatness of God's justice and mercy, which are beyond human understanding. He challenges Job to consider that his sufferings might in some way be deliberate acts of a loving God, and he concludes in chapter 37 and verses 32 to, or 23 through 24 by saying this he says, "The Almighty, we cannot find him. he is great in power, justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate, therefore men fear him, he does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. <laughs> what words from Elihu? He does not regard anyone who is wise in their own conceit. So sharp and just reminding us that we need to look to God. And then in chapter 38, God himself enters the discussion and criticizes those who have darkened counsel with words that are without knowledge. 32 verse 8, 38 verse 2. In one of the Bible's most remarkable passages, God paints a picture for Job and the others of his unique and sovereign power. And at one point he says, who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? God looks at the natural world and considers the many things that he has made from seas to stars, from ostriches to oxen. Then in chapter 40, God asked Job directly, shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. To which Job's response is simple. He says, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Wise words, Job. And God replies to Job and he says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger, and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. He's basically challenging him. And then in the remainders of chapter 40 and 41, God continues to instruct Job and the others about who he is this isn't just to job it's to job and the others he he tells us he says in in 41 10 and 11 who then is he who can stand before me who has first given to me that i should repay him whatever is under the whole heaven is mine in chapter 42 the last chapter of job he makes job makes his final confession he says i had heard of you by the hearing of the ear But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. The story ends here in chapter 42 with God telling Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar that they have been in the wrong. He says that what Job has said about God is true, and then he blesses Job in his repentance. There are some interesting things that God does not say, which we'll get to those in a moment. But that's a summary of the whole book. Now back to that main theme, running throughout the chapters, right? First, we learned that we often suffer, but that main theme is that we sometimes understand. Job's friends maintained that we can always understand why we suffer. They said we can always understand why we suffer, right? It became formulaic for them. Suffering equals sin in your life. That was their arguments. They could say something like, Job, what's happened to you is really bad. You must have sinned in a most extraordinary way because God is just. And though you deny having sinned, we know that you must have. There can be no other explanation. We may even have Christians who come within our own church that give us this kind of message. Matt, Devin, Katie, Josue, your suffering, it's because of your sin. So repent of your sin. See what you've done in light of God. We know that you've been up to something. Is that not a byproduct of the law? It could be a byproduct of the law. It is definitely a byproduct of the depravity of our hearts. (laughs) And Job responds basically always with, oh, no, this can't be because of my sin. It can't be because of my sin. Not that he's never sinned. He's not saying he's sinless or faultless, but that he has no great unmarked hidden sin in his life that could have caused such a calamity. And Job's friends keep coming back with this idea that you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. And the response is really like, the response of Jesus's disciples in John chapter nine. And there they said, "Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind?" Remember the blind man Jesus encounters. He heals him, and as they're working through and seeing this man, the disciples were like, "Was it his fault or was it his parents' fault?" And he's gotten what he's deserved we can sympathize with them. They wanted to know why this could have happened to their friend Job or the disciples wanted to know why this could have happened to this man. But they didn't, they didn't deny the reality of the material world like a Christian scientist or Buddhist who says, in essence, suffering isn't real. And they couldn't abandon their orthodoxy by rejecting God's justice or his sovereignty. So this is what we're left with. How can an innocent Job suffer in, a, in the world of a God who is both sovereign and just? Logically, something has to give. And Job's innocence would seem to be the first thing to go in their conclusions. Now, in our world, people give up on all three of these pillars. Some just flat out deny suffering is a reality. Right? Well, I'm, I don't suffer anything. Some think that God is well-intentioned, but that he's unable to protect us. So, I'm not suffering, or it's God's fault. He can't actually protect me. Why would you believe in God like that? Yeah. And others just flat-out deny his goodness or his justice. So, I don't suffer. It's God's fault because he can't protect me, or God's not good and he's not just. But only the religion of the Bible has the audacity to maintain that all four of these things could be true. Suffering, that God's in absolute control, that God is good, and yet Job is innocent. We all have similar tendencies, don't we? We all assume at some level the right to understand what God is doing through suffering. Like, let's think of this. I know that this has happened time from time. Uh, I'd be interested to see if Katie's had any experience with her seminary classes on this. Uh, Think of the the recent hurricane in Florida, right? There is probably somebody on YouTube that's going, God is judging Florida. And it's because he sent those immigrants up to Martha's Vineyard. (laughs) Good boy, Ronnie. (laughs) There is probably somebody who's saying that, right? But what, look, look at the logic that's presented in that kind of argument. That's so audacious, right? We, we can say, God, you're acting this way because there's something wrong in Florida, and it's Ron DeSantis, right? We're assuming that we're God, and that we can cause something like a supernatural hurricane to come upon a particular land— And say, oh, this all happened because there was sin in the lives of the Floridians. Now, uh, let's say this. Did God design the world with hurricanes in mind? Yeah, he did. He creates weather. He ordains it. So, was this for God's glory? Yep. It was. If he's made it, it's for his glory. What does it show? Think of the immensity of a hurricane. Okay. Sounds good. Thanks. Um, A hurricane shows the power of God. You think of the immense winds of how that system moves from place to place. Nobody, what I thought was interesting too, during the hurricane, everybody said, this is the path it's going to take. It's going to start right here. What happened? It didn't go anywhere where people expected it to go. I've got a good friend who's pastored down in Sanibel Island. His church, his entire island, destroyed. That was a nice place. It was an awesome place. <laughs> he had been in Abu Dhabi for you know 10 years preaching the gospel and uh, developing a church uh, in the UAE. And the Lord called him back home to Florida to this retirement community where he had just been there for maybe three years and had been helping turn a, a church that was very comfortable into a healthy gospel preaching church again. And three years in, the Lord's like, okay, we're going to do this. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to wipe the whole thing out. We're going to start again. He's been in Fort Myers just meeting with people, trying to gather up people, get gas, get materials. It's been an incredible testimony to watch. But he's looking at that. he, He was reflecting on Job as I was watching his Facebook and seeing what he was doing. In writing, in response to all this, he's like, I just was reminded of the God who creates these things. That he could use this kind of circumstance for his glory. We want to say that we can figure out exactly why God does what he does. We want to assume that we can have the understanding of the Almighty. Friends, that's just an inappropriate assumption. It's ungodly. It's unbiblical. It's vile. When we get down to it, it is reprehensible. Why do we ask these questions of the why and suffering? If we're honest, we don't do it out of humility, we do it out of anger. How dare God be God? How dare God tell us to do this since we followed him so faithfully? How dare God inflict us because of look at our faithfulness. Look at our circumstances. God didn't work for me after all. How dare he? What do we expect of this kind of knowledge? We should expect God's wrath. That's what that kind of knowledge leads to, God's wrath. That's really the point of Job perhaps more than anything, is that Job teaches us that we don't have all the facts. In a moment, we'll look at the interchange between God and Satan that answers why Job suffered. But Job never knew that, did he? That was just a conversation between God and Satan. And it's only apparent to us because God tells us in his word. God never explains to Job. He never pulls him to the side. And he says, Job, I'm sorry for all these troubles that you've been through. This is going to come up. You should be prepared. He doesn't give him the forewarning of what's going to happen. Let me tell you why everything happened. Satan came along, right? He doesn't even respond with Satan came along and asked me this question of whether or not you truly follow me. And so I said, well, let's put him to the test. Nothing like that happens. Job is completely in the dark, and Job's friends didn't understand why he suffered either. Job doesn't understand why he suffered. His friends don't understand. We understand, but only because God tells us. So the book of Job isn't about understanding why evil happens. Rather, it's simply telling us that sometimes we understand. Only sometimes do we understand. So if we don't get what we want, what Job wanted, an explanation, how we can continue, how can we continue to live faithful lives? And that brings us to our third point. Often we suffer. Sometimes we understand. The final point is we can always trust God. How do we live faithful lives? By trusting God. Hey, good morning faith exists because understanding doesn't faith exists because understanding doesn't if we insist on living only according to our understanding and completely apart from trust then we cannot be Christians we need to know how to trust and how to trust God and the good news is that we have a basis for that trust it's God's power In some of the most beautiful poetry that you will ever read, the book of Job displays the power of God, the one we're called to trust. Like the other great Old Testament books that grapple with the problem of suffering, we never find an explanation. But we do understand more of who God is. And in that knowledge of our Lord, we find the evidence we need on which to base our trust. We see his creation of all things. We consider his power and his competency. We observe his providence and caring for everything that he has created, particularly his care for us. And we know that he is the one who can be trusted. And as I said, Job never understands why he suffered. What he's given is knowledge about God. And Job trusted that God. But we are so much more blessed, aren't we? Because God lets us peek behind the scenes so that we can understand why Job suffered. And that's the heavenly court scene in chapter one. Now in that scene, go ahead, flip your Bible over to Job chapter one. Satan was wrong, you know. Satan accuses Job of serving God for his own selfish ends, Okay. Matt, can you read chapter 1, verses 9 through 11? And Satan answered the Lord and said, does, God, does Job fear God for no reason? Do not put a hedge around him in his house and all that he has on every side. Bless the work of his hands and his possessions and increase priests the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. So Satan assumes that Job... Serves God because he's wealthy. God knows that Satan's wrong, but he allows Satan to take away Job's wealth. And guess what? When all of his wealth is gone, what does Job continue to do? Worship God. Satan was wrong. But Satan has never just been put off by the fact that he was wrong. So he accuses Job of serving God only because his health remains. Oh, surely, Satan says, you can take away everything a man has, but if you touch his body, then you'll find out what he really cares about. Then he will curse you to your face. Again, God allows Satan to do what he asks. He takes away Job's health. And guess what? Job's body wastes away, but he still worships God. Job's changing circumstances reveal that as wealthy as he is, Job's not worshiping God because of his wealth. As healthy as he is, Job's not worshiping God because of his health. The true worship of God does not depend on our circumstances. We can certainly give thanks for good circumstances, but true worship is a response to who God is regardless of our circumstances. In fact, that brings us to one of the central ironies of this book. I hope you've noticed it. Most of this book consists of Job's friends saying to him, Hey, Job. I know you look virtuous, but there must be some sin here. But they are were so far wrong that someone could have said to them, "Eliphaz, Zophar, Bildad, this suffering might have come on you had you been more virtuous." Job faced the suffering not because of his vices, but because of his virtue. And that was why, of all the things God could have bragged about before Satan, he chose Job. So, what does this mean for us? It means that we don't trust God because we are so clever or holy, but because his character is trustworthy. Guys, we're not clever enough, we're not holy enough, but God is trustworthy. His character is trustworthy. The only basis for trust that Job was ever given was God's character, who he is. Remember that, who he is, because he didn't understand what he was doing or why he was doing it, but he knew who God was. He never read Job chapter one. He was only shown God's character. Essentially, God says, Job, look out the window at the beauty of my creation And let that be enough information about my goodness and power to enable you to trust me while I rip your world to pieces. And Job does indeed trust him. Think of how much more we know about God's character than even Job did. How much more evidence we have to trust God. Skip from his vantage point to ours now. And the gospel's we read about the greatest injustice ever perpetuated in the history of the universe, the murder of the innocent son of God. Job may have been innocent, but Jesus was much more innocent than Job was. And we see how God used that great moment for his glory through the salvation of mankind for our sin. So statements about suffering in the New Testament can point back to this pivotal event. If God can use even this greatest good, this, the dying of the Lord Jesus, how much more confidence do we have in his good purposes for our own suffering? Romans eight twelve says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? The pattern set in Job is what we get throughout the Bible. How does suffering, the suffering of God's people jive with his sovereignty and mercy? No explanation. But there is a call to trust. And yet through the centuries compounding more and more evidence on which we, uh, we can see to base that trust culminating in the suffering of Christ and his glory. We need to think about our own history. Think about church history. How many of you guys know there was a very important historical event that happened this past week back in the 1400s? Anybody know what it was? Give us a hint. Has to do with the Bible. Who was the guy that translated it into English? Tyndale. Tyndale. Yeah, this past week, Tyndale was burnt at the stakes for translating the Bible into English. Right. What was interesting enough was that Henry VIII was the one who sent him to the stakes for translating the Bible into English. And it was that person, that moment, that work that would eventually become the spearhead for the Reformation in England. Hmm. Hence, Tyndale's suffering. Hence the reason it was such a threat. <laughs> yeah, Tyndale's suffering. Why did that happen? No idea. Well, we can't explain it. But you know what Tyndale cried out? In the final moments of his life, God opened the eyes of the king of England. Oh, his eyes were opened. And the, the rest of the world has never been the same because of it. God uses moments of our suffering to show his power and his glory. Why? No idea. But Tyndale trusted God. And as he cried out in the last moments of his life that God would open the eyes of the king, he'd never get to see that come to life, but the rest of us do. We get to look back and see what happened. At times, God does graciously allow us to see how things unfold and how he can use difficult situations for our good. And surely we should thank him for the information that we have. We should thank him for the consolation of such moments that our understanding affords us. But there's a danger in assuming that he must give us such understanding. What will follow then is a counterfeit trust. A trust in our own abilities to figure out all of God's purposes within any particular trial. God doesn't have to give us the understanding. Rather, we've got to trust in God and in his character as he has finally revealed it to us in Jesus at the cross. The only one who is worthy of our trust is not ourselves, nor is it our own clever ability to figure out life's naughty questions. It's God Himself. We can trust God because, as Job said, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that the last, at last, he will stand on the earth. How would Job's Redeemer redeem? By living more righteously and perfectly than Job ever could. And by taking upon himself more suffering than Job ever knew. Job's patience amid suffering, you see, was finally meant to point to the genuinely perfect righteousness and wholly undeserved suffering of Jesus on the cross. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection on the third day, Christ would defeat the powers of sin and death. And God promises to forgive everyone who repents of their sins and trusts in Christ. They too, along with Job, will understand and stand with their Redeemer in the end. So, we come to Job. We we highlighted in this time a particular example of Jesus with the disciples in John chapter 9. When they asked Jesus about the blind man... They said, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born? And apparently they were asking the wrong question. It was not that this man sinned or his parents, Jesus responds, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. God intends to display his glory in your life and in the life of everyone around you. You can be certain of that. Now, how he specifically intends to do this would take us into other books of the Bible, but within the context of Job, we can see very clearly that he intends to display his glory in the lives of his children as they continue to serve him amidst life's trials. And if you're God's child, reconciled to him through Christ, realize that your very suffering can exquisitely display the glory of God as you serve and worship him in a way that defies the world and its comprehension and ability. And if you, Christian, are presently enduring a season of suffering, it may be that God, who is sitting in heaven right now and saying to his heavenly host about him, Have you considered my servant? Could it be that one day you will watch as God shows to all creation? the presently unrevealed glories of what he has done by making you in his image and then remaking you as his child. We often suffer. We only sometimes understand, but we can always trust in God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for who you are, that you are just and righteous, that you are sovereign and good. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in you in the middle of our circumstances and that we would, like Job, worship you in truth. Not because of our circumstances or because of what we think you're going to do, but because of who you are. So Lord, we trust you and we rely upon you for grace, for strength, and for patience in this season. Help us to suffer well for your glory and for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. All right.